welcome to Coming Up for Air, the Allies in Recovery podcast, with hosts Laurie McDougall, Kayla Solomon, and Dominique Simone Levine. Okay, ladies, so I have no idea what we're talking about today, so I'm going to leave it in your hands, Kayla and Dominique. We're talking about you, Laurie. Oh, boy. <laughs> we are. We're gonna, we're, we'd like to hear a little bit of your history in terms of how you came to teach craft for allies in recovery and how you created rest groups and how you came to this work. The first time I met you was I think in 2015 when you had me come talk at a Learn to Cope meeting, which is a family support meeting in in Massachusetts. And you about threw yourself in front of me after we'd left the building (laughs) and caught up with me and said, I have to talk to you. You're going to know me. Yeah, I do remember that. I think it was a good six months into my journey, and I had started really going to a lot of Al-Anon meetings and Learn to Cope meetings, and I'm pretty sure I was, well, I was facilitating Learn to Cope meetings in my area, and I invited you out, Dominique. I don't know if you remember, but I sent you an email, and I was like, you know, hey, my cousin told me about the Allies and Recovery website. I found this website. I love it. It's the way I think. I'm a facilitator for Learn to Cope out here. You really need to come out and talk to our group, and you need to tell them about the Allies and Recovery website and craft. And I think I invited you to come and stay at my house. I don't know if you remember that, but I was like, you can come and you can stay with me, but you have to come to this meeting. And you did. You came, you spoke. And then on your way out the door, I was like, excuse me, excuse me. (laughs) Hi, uh, hi, Mrs. Levine. This is, I'm Laurie McDougall. I'm the one that invited you out here to speak. And uh, I basically grabbed a hold of your ankle and was like, you're not going anywhere. I'm going to be a part of your life now for quite a while, because I think what you're doing is amazing. And that's how we got connected. And we really stayed connected. I don't know if you remember, but as we were discussing like what kind of a role I might take, because I really had decided that it was really important to get craft in allies and recovery out into the community and let family members know that this this incredible resource was available to families. It became my mission. And I don't know if you remember, but we met on the highway at a McDonald's in a rest area to kind of discuss, like, what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? Do you remember that day? I do remember that. And you had left teaching because, in part, because of your son. This had been six months. What had happened in the in those six months prior to us meeting? So prior to that, what had happened was my son had overdosed and I had found him. And that was my introduction to the opioid problem that we were having in the country. I was really traumatized. I was eventually diagnosed with PTSD. And after that first six months, I had promised my husband, I know this is going to sound crazy, but I was traumatized so badly in the beginning that I couldn't get off my couch. Oddly enough, I had already left my job. It's a weird, I can't explain it, but it was something that I knew something wasn't right 
something was going to happen. And luckily I had done just that. I had um, left my job. And then uh, a few months later is when I found my son overdosed. And so I was traumatized after that trauma. I can't even explain it to you. It's not like I was depressed. It was more like I was in a state of shock. And so I couldn't do anything for the first six months after that. I couldn't get off the couch. I could barely function in the house. I didn't have a job, so I wasn't going to a job. And I don't think I would have been able to, to do my job anyway. So it's, it's a good thing that I wasn't working at the time. But what I did was my husband was like, when, when are you going to get off the couch? And I had said to him, well, you know, I don't know why, but I can't. But I promise at the end of six months, if I'm still stuck in here, I'm going to do something about it. And sure enough, I was still stuck <laughs> at the end of six months. And that's when I started going to like all of the Al-Anon meetings, Naranon meetings, and learn to cope meetings. And I traveled. I mean, I went to all of the all of the meetings I could go to in Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts. And eventually became a facilitator for Learn to Cope. And that's how we met. And that's that's kind of the story, but it kind of continues on from there, right? Because I started facilitating the Learn to Cope meetings and someone from Rhode Island had actually asked me to help them set something up in Rhode Island because they felt there wasn't a lot going on there. So I realized that I loved my Al-Anon and Naranon meetings. They did so much for me to help me kind of get out of my funk. But I also felt that there was something missing in the meetings. I felt that Al-Anon and Naranon told me what I should do, but they weren't telling me how to do it. Allies in Recovery and Craft was telling me how I could do it. And so I thought, hey, let's marry the two. Let's create a meeting that marries the two. And that's how rest was kind of born out of this, this idea that, yep, we're going to still be a lot of support, but we're also going to be educational. And I'm going to include allies in recovery in that because that's going to be the curriculum. And we're going to, we're going to go to these meetings. We're going to have these meetings where families have the opportunity to learn these incredible skills. So you started a not-for-profit organization and you called it REST. And you set off and created meetings around Rhode Island. How, how did it go in the beginning? <laughs> Not great. I can tell you this. Actually, at the time, at the start of the rest meetings, it wasn't a nonprofit. It was literally just, just these meetings. How it became a nonprofit is because for the first year, year and a half, two years, I went and sat in a room completely by myself. Nobody showed up to my meetings. I had put posters out. I had joined a coalition in Rhode Island to try and get the word out that these new groups were starting. Nothing. I wasn't getting any traction at all. And I'm telling you, for, for a good year, I would go and sit in that room. Probably more. I, it's more like two years. But I would go and sit in that room and nobody showed up. Nobody. <laughs> so tell me about these crisis toolkits, because this story is is memorable. Well, 
what happened after the two years, I was like, I- I've got to figure out some way to let people know that these rest meetings are happening and that allies in recovery is available to families, right? So I had heard about the governor's overdose task force in Rhode Island. I started attending the governor's overdose task force. I would stand up and I would speak about rest meetings. I would speak about allies in recovery. I actually tried to write the task force a letter and say, please let allies come and and present to you. And they kind of, they didn't know who I was and they kind of put it aside. Then I found out that there was a family task force and I got involved in the family task force. And I started thinking about how I can't seem to market this allies in recovery rest meeting kind of thing. So I thought, I know. I know what we should do. I know what families need. Families need Narcan. Families need a membership to the Allies in Recovery website. Families need to know that rest exists. Families need, they need a whole bunch of resources. So what I decided to do was to create, I called it a crisis toolkit. And what I did was I created a pamphlet that is a framework for families to create a crisis plan. So what that was, was five quick tips of what a family could do if they find themselves in the middle of a crisis. You know, here's what you do. Here's five things that you can do pretty quickly, pretty immediately. Then you open it up. It's it's one of those trifold brochures. On the inside cover was here, write down all the information on uh, Narcan because I wanted families to be aware, get Narcan, have Narcan available. Then the inside third of it was all the resources that families would go and look up for themselves. And I made sure to include at the very top rest meetings and allies in recovery so that I'm pointing them right in that direction. And then the last third of it was resources for the loved one to help family members start to understand the different resources that are available to their loved one within the state. But also in the toolkit was two doses of Narcan, a membership to the Allies in Recovery website, flyers for all sorts of resources across the state. It's a physical bag. So, you know, I put everything in this bag and I, through the family task force, It became a family task force initiative, and I started tabling and going to all sorts of events and literally handing out thousands of rest crisis toolkits. And when I did that, the word started to get out that there were these rest meetings and people started showing up to the rest meetings. And for the first time, I would say it was you know, a good two years into it, I started to have regular attendance on like Monday nights because that's what I had started with. And it was literally because of these toolkits. It was my marketing, my marketing, single-handed marketing, because I'm telling you, I, I have passed out. I have handed out upwards of 2000 toolkits by myself, almost completely by myself. I have had some help, but almost completely by myself handing out these toolkits to Rhode Island residents just to get the word out about allies and rest. I just think your energy and your passion 
are amazing. And it's been seven years now and you're running professional and family trainings for people so that they learn our site and are able to use our site, whether you're a family member using it for yourself, your recovery coach, handing it off to your, the family of someone you're working with. And as in the last couple of days, we've been training uh, mostly professionals, psychologists, psychiatrists, and clinicians in craft as we do it on Allies in Recovery. First and foremost, how to facilitate a group like you have learned to do. So tell us a little bit about a rest group and how does it differ from Al-Anon or a support group like Learn to Cope? So it has the same similar basic structure of a support group. So I always have an opening, right? I always read the mission statement and I always have an opening. I think consistency. And I also think having something that the family member when they come or any participant can count on and also something that indicates when the meeting has actually opened when we are in meeting mode, we are not in social, let's sit down and say our highs mode, uh, you know, hello, how are you doing? You know, no, now we're in the meeting. So, and then after I have the opening, then it's, it's learning time. Within the opening, we do have introductions. And usually I ask kind of a question, or I will try and get people thinking in terms of craft. So I might say, Everybody, if you could go ahead and introduce yourself, say who you're here for, and then um, tell me how you're feeling in terms of the weather, because I'm trying to get people to one to to start identifying how they're feeling and to start talking about it. And so this is more of a, a craft kind of a, a method. And it's also how you're feeling in, in a non-accusatory way if that makes sense, in a non-judgmental way. And it gets people to stop, stop for a minute and think about what we're moving into. And so that might be an opening. Then the body of the meeting is usually, typically it's learning time. So we are either going over a skill or we are doing an activity that is very complementary to something they've already learned on the Allies in Recovery website. And oftentimes I will either, I might show one of the allies in recovery videos and go through an activity with the group together. I love to do that actually with module three. I think module three is a great group activity. Or let's say I might assign, hey, we're really moving into module five. Why don't you watch module five? over the next week. And then when you come in, we're going to discuss it. We're going to talk about it. And then I might also include some kind of an activity to kind of enhance module five so that people have maybe a better understanding of what it is that they're doing. So like module five goes really well with understanding what a reward is because you'd be surprised a lot of people don't have a clear understanding of what a reward is. Also, what bribes, incentives, and reinforcing positive behavior? What's the difference? What's the best way to go? You know, should I use a bribe? Should I not use a bribe? And we might look at something like that 
we offer a lot of support because there are a lot of family members will come in and, and they're not in a good headspace. So we might sit and listen and just be with that person and offer up support as much as we can. And then we have a closing. I do not li- like to leave, just leave the room. And I learned this one thing. I mean, just an example of a closing and I change it up all the time, but just an example of a closing. And I learned this from Annabeth Moyer Bell. She, uh, she runs drama therapist group, which is out of, it's out of Boston now, but they're called the um, second act. But as a closing, I might do something like, especially if people are really struggling for the day, what are you going to leave here in the room? And what are you going to take home with you? So leave the anxiety, leave the garbage here. And what, you know, what piece are you going to take with you? Uh, The support and the care of everybody in the group is what I'm going to take with me. Or, you know what, I'm really going to work on setting some kind of a small boundary this week. Okay, great. And that's basically what we do. And I'll tell you, most people, a lot of people come with pen and paper and they take notes. And I think it's a really, it's a great group because it tends to be incredibly positive. Even when we're struggling and we're emotional, it tends to almost always end a little bit more positive. And I also think it's very active and engaging it's not us just sitting around talking. It's active and engaging and it gives families something to do. And how well, is this a hard question to answer, but how well do you think your groups do? You know, there's lots of indications that they're doing well or doing better. I don't want to say doing well, but do, but definitely doing better. A lot of the time families come in and you can see it. They're really struggling. They're really not understanding things. You know, there's tons of conflict in the family. They're struggling to try and figure things untangle, right? Just picture a picture a ball of yarn that's just been kind of tangled up together. And you can see them start to pull each little piece of yarn out of the ball and to watch the family members, because I have a lot of family members that come to these meetings for years to watch them go from one state to another. And you can, you can see the progress. Never mind the fact that, especially when I have new people that come into the room and the people, I call them old hats, you know, the people that come in and they're wearing their old hats, they've been coming for a while and how they pull the other, those families that are struggling along is huge progress. And they will always speak up and say, yeah, no, it was craft that helped me. And they will always encourage the other family members, stick with it, stay with it. You will see change. You will see change. Even if you, and I know this is hard for a lot of families, newer families to understand, even if your loved one doesn't go into long-term recovery, even if your loved one, right, is still using, it can change you and improve on your situation and your situation with your loved one, your connection, your relationship. So I would say, I think from what I hear and the feedback that I get, it's mostly positive. So Kayla, and it's interesting transition, but Kayla, um, you run our Wednesday night 
emotional support group. You're a master level clinician and you've got quite a large group now at this point. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do in the group and how you believe it's working? My group is basically the reinforcement of the skills and people come in with various questions. It's not structured in any way other than always in our group, we start out with the new people checking in so that they can introduce themselves and tell us what their situation is. And then literally I open it up to what's going on. What do people need to talk about tonight? And then, as I like to say, it's the room full of experts because we have a lot of returning members. So really it's like, I mean, I'm certainly a big part of it, but people are sharing what they're doing. Like if the question is, you know, it's nighttime, I'm freaking out. How do I deal with this? We open it up and we talk about that. What are, what are the tools that people use? What are the options that you have to get through it? What's the kind of goal of how to manage your emotions and all of that while you're in a difficult situation? And also we sometimes will change topics depending on what goes on. But it's really this very interactive group where People are sharing their experiences and sharing the tools that they use and sharing the changes that happens. And I'm certainly jumping in and providing basically a clinical interpretation of things because that's my experience personally and professionally. But basically the idea is that I think of it as an applied group so that you're getting support for the things that are absolutely on your mind, what you're experiencing that particular week, and also how you're going to cope with it and what you're going to do. So, and the group really participates. And I just want to do a little background about how I got to the group because I did not start there. And I think this is kind of interesting. I actually got trained 17, 18 years ago in craft in New Mexico. And I literally came back from the training and I was like, no, I don't want to work with family members. I want to work with addicts because that was my experience. And I felt like that was kind of dealing with things more directly. And I felt like you know, dealing with the family members was not going to be as effective in changing the dynamic wrong. But anyway, what happened was I was years later, I was working with an addict for months and months and months. And I had been in contact with this family who got him to me. And what wound up happening is he literally was in my office at nine o'clock. He left at 10. He was found dead at 1030. And it completely shattered me. And obviously his family was shattered. And I was like, all right, I need to do something about this. And literally it was my way of doing something with that horrendous situation. And I called Dominique and I said, okay, I'm, I'm ready. Can I do a group? Back in. Yeah. And, and I said, I, you know, cause my experience is running groups as well. And I have a lot of years of addiction experience, but it's a different angle. And one of the things that I think that I offer in the group is I have a lot of addiction experience. So I could talk a lot about that when people have questions about addiction and the dynamics of what's happening with their loved one. So I started the group, which I think is like three years ago, but I, I'm not sure. And, and what's been fascinating is the transition from when I started to now, because now we have enough people who have been coming regularly. And what I would describe as the change is that people are really taking this in and working on communication and working on the connection and really, really focusing on self-care and changing expectations about what they're expecting from their loved ones and not having this kind of 
black and white thinking of like, okay, once they get sober and clean and are in recovery, it's the end of the story. It's like, it is merely the middle of the story. And this is a lifelong process, you know? So it's like, once somebody's dealing with addiction, it just doesn't magically go away because they get into treatment. When I first started doing the group, I had this cursory knowledge of craft because I had just done the training and that wasn't enough to really lock it in with me. But doing the group has really locked in craft for me personally as well. And as a clinician, it's one of the finest tools that I have now, which is how to think about things in a different way. And and I think that that's the essential part of craft is that you're not just behaving differently, you're reorienting your thoughts So that instead of looking at, okay, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to control things. I need to jump in with my superhero cape and make something change and save lives. It's really this focus on self. And how am I going to look at myself so that I am the most helpful in this particular situation? How am I going to actually take things apart so that I and making conscious choices and not reactive choices? How do I actually use the tools to calm my system down so that I'm actually stepping forward in a way where I'm part of the solution and I'm not part of the problem? And I think that that's the fundamental craft basics because if I keep doing what I've always done, then nothing changes. And it's tiny little changes that we make that affect the interaction, that affect the relationship, and ultimately affect how that person is dealing in the world. And I think that that is so incredibly powerful and underrated, because I think that when you have the superhero cape on, you're going in with big moves. You're, you know, you're having gigantic interventions and you're stopping things or starting things or initiating things. And what craft is about is a much more subtle process It's kind of more like you're building a house with Legos as opposed to bricks because it's small and incremental and tiny, but then you wind up with this magical thing and you don't even know how you got there because it's so tiny. How is this even working? But our loved ones know when we shift, our loved ones need us to change how we're looking at things because so many of the loved ones not only feel guilt and shame about their own behavior, but they feel guilty and shame about what they've done to us, okay? And that's what what, what we're trying to do is undo that so that they don't feel like they're victimizing us and we don't feel victimized. We feel more like we have power and our power is gonna be in a more positive, subtle, gentle way of change. And that is absolutely a gigantic shift. And if I can kind of piggyback, and I just said this, Actually, yesterday, Kayla, I just said this in a training that we're doing right now with a whole bunch of peers and professionals. I said that craft is self-care. Yeah, it is self-care. So how everybody keeps telling family members, you've got to take care of yourself. You got to take care of yourself. You got to take care of yourself. Believe it or not, all of these skills that you're learning is actually self-care. And oftentimes family members come in and they don't understand that in the beginning. And so piggybacking on what you said, that's why taking these tiny little baby steps on your journey to set these boundaries down and to learn these skills, it's self-care. It is slowly teaching you how to move towards yourself and how that impacts your loved one. But it's also 
family members don't, or those allies, I think craft does it in such a subtle way that it allows the family member on their journey to slowly move there. That that's a really incredibly difficult concept to grasp as a family member, how how this is really empowering me and how it is actually going to impact my loved one in a positive way by me letting go. And also the other thing that craft does by doing that, by taking these small baby steps, it kind of takes into account that the family member and the family itself has its own trauma and difficulties to be dealing with on top of what they're dealing with their loved one. Right. And one of the things I want to say about trauma and generational trauma, which we'll be getting to in other ways, is that we all have trauma and we don't realize it. There's trauma that we grow up with. It could be big T or little T, gigantic, obvious traumas, or just more subtle traumas. And that gets translated generationally in our genes and also in our behavior. And what I really appreciate about craft, and by the way, all therapies, is the ideas that you're going to stop the trauma, you're going to interrupt it and start learning other tools so that you can stop that generational transmission. And so I actually think it's an obligation that we have to work on ourselves to heal our trauma so that we don't keep generating from that place. And that's the power stance is I am going to heal myself. Because when every person walks into the group, if I ask them how they're doing, they describe what their loved one is doing. And the first step that we do is we start turning your gaze back to yourself as the solution, as the fix to things. So that's the power stance is I can work on myself. I can change myself. And then also you're a role model, because if you're a mess and you're trying to get your loved one not to be, you're a hypocrite. So do work, show that you're digging in, and then you get to model it. And if you're not focused on them, their decisions become theirs and your decisions become yours. And that's part of the boundaries that we're talking about is you cannot make a decision for somebody else, but you certainly can for yourself. Right. And the decisions that we're making for ourselves by learning craft is this essential way of gently protecting ourselves from our loved one who we love. I mean, we have ended up so entrenched and in there anticipating and fixing and predicting and protecting and paying. And we don't know where I end and you begin. And so I I need to be sort of gently shown that, you know, I don't need to have irritating phone calls all day at work from you. I can say, no, I'm not going to take your calls. I'll take them the night before, I'll take them after five, but I can't take them between nine and five. That is a small boundary, a small way to protect yourself that's gonna calm you down so that you can focus on your work, so that your colleagues don't see you taking these harassing calls from your loved one who's desperate for money or or whatever it is. So just little by little, you start to feel a little more protected in this in this relationship with someone with active addiction and therefore better able to observe, to see, 
to realize that when I make this little shift, when I don't say that sarcastic thing when he's going out the door, because I know he's going to be using. So I'm going to say, hey, you know, see if you don't fall on your face tonight or whatever it is. You know, when I don't do that, I am protecting myself because I am calmer. I didn't do it. He didn't hear it. We didn't experience that together. And it's just a, a better opportunity the next time to do something that's a little more connective, despite how scared, how angry, how frustrated, how repetitive, how completely inane it is that he's going out and saying he's not going to use when we all know he's going to, you know? So, so it's that, it's the ability to live with this and to find some sense in it and some comfort ways, some ways of comforting yourself um, that are actually the most effective things you can do to influence your loved one. If you don't say that sarcastic remark on the way out the door, he's going to wonder what's up. <laughs> you know, also piggybacking on that, this is what I see Kraft is doing. Because Kraft moves so slowly and allows you to kind of narrow into a very small boundary or influencing in these small little ways, and it's not so big and black and white. So what I mean by this is, Let's say your loved one is calling, needs money, needs to put gas in the tank, and they're, you know, they're claiming, oh, um, I'm not getting paid until next Friday. I have no way to get to work, and I've got no money left to feed the kids. That's tugging on mom's or dad's heartstrings, right? Oh, my grandbabies. My grandbabies need to be fed. And how is my loved one going to get to work if they don't have gas in the tank and they don't have any money, to, Right. So a lot of the time we think in terms of black and white, I either give the money or I don't give the money. And I think in terms of, well, if I don't give the money, then the grandbabies are going to be hungry. My loved one isn't going to be able to get to work. They're not going to get the next paycheck. Everything's going to fall apart, right? It's this big spiral out of control. So my only option is I've got to give the money. But if I give them money, I become resentful. When are they going to learn? I start to nag. I start letting them know, right? So now I start with this negative, difficult interaction with my loved one and nothing gets better. What craft allows you to do is to soothe the things that you're struggling with. So I might go into the gray area and say, okay, I'm not going to give you cash but I tell you what I can do. So I will offer up the things that I am capable of doing. I can meet you at the gas station and I'll pump gas for you, or I'll pay for it with my credit card. I will show up at your house with a bag of groceries. What staples do you need for the grandbabies? So I relieve some of my angst and my worry but I also am moving into an, a space of I'm not going to give you cash because I'm worried about where my cash is going to go. So it allows me to kind of get in that gray space. I'm not being traumatized where now I'm spending hours at night going, oh, my God, are the kids going to eat? You know, are they going to be able to feed the grandbabies? Is he going to be able to go to work? Is he? I'm not going to have to worry about that stuff and kind of be re-traumatized and and anxiety ridden in the evening, I'm holding to some kind of a boundary. And I can always address it later and say, hey, I just want to let you know, you know, my finances are not going to allow me to continually fill up the tank. 
So, um, you know, I don't know, do you need help with maybe a budget? Can I get you someone to help you with a budget? It allows me to go into that gray space and kind of like what Kayla said, not so big, not these big reactive kind of bombs that I'm going to drop that become explosive and make it difficult on everybody, me included. And what, what I would add is that the one thing that I really think is one of the essential craft moves is not making pronouncements, which is basically, I'm never going to give you money. If you do this, I'm going to do this, where this is big, very clear, finite statements that you probably cannot do. It, it makes your credibility go out the window. It also often is a reactive stance to take because you're really upset about something. And I think that's a big reaction. So the smaller reaction is in the moment, because the thing I like about craft is you're constantly assessing what's going on and what you need and what the process is and what tools you're going to use at a particular time, which is the part I really appreciate. It's like every moment you're like, okay, this happened. What's my best move? Or I'm concerned about this. What can I do? But you're taking time to actually process with the tools that we give you so that you're actually moving into clarity and not mess. Because really what I see is when people come in, they're coming in with this gigantic bag of mess. And what we're doing in all the groups that we do is taking the mess apart because the mess is only a mess because too many things are in the pile. But once you take it apart, put things in their place, assess what you need and what you don't need, figure out what you're going to use, and then build up this whole new bag of tools for yourself so that you are actually able to make better choices for yourself and then consequently for your loved one. And by the way, when I say the best moves for your loved one, this is not that they're going to be, oh, that's great. Thank you so much for <laughs> saying no to me and you know, saying, okay, you have to leave now because it's not working out. That's not the point. It's more that you're in this process of being more real, being more connected, being more present, having self-care, modeling regulation, self-regulation, modeling appropriate communication, not having you know these pronouncements. Because also, I just want to point out that one of the things that drives us nuts about the people with dealing with, with substance use is that they're into absolutes. You never do this. You always do this. We all are, we hate that, but we do the same thing. You never listen to me. You never follow up. If you do this, I'm never going to give you money again. So, okay, we don't like it. Don't do it. So basically what we're suggesting is every day you're making a decision to engage differently. Every day you have to recommit to this on a daily basis. Because if we get into the treadmill and we're like, it's not the, the the assembly line where you get on this assembly line and then you're at the end of it and you're like, oh my God, I've been taken apart by this whole process. We want you to put yourself back together. We want you to stop and really look at yourself and feed yourself and fuel yourself and calm yourself and bring your thinking brain back on board so that you actually are in a position to make excellent choices, even if they don't feel excellent. Because we're not looking at what's right or wrong decisions anymore, because that's how you get set up for the absolutes. There's these tiny little choices that you get to make that will have a result, but you will not know it unless you do it. 
Well, we kind of veered off a little bit about. Yeah, I know. That's what happens. <laughs> yes, we do. We we get into these incredible discussions and uh, kind of veered off in another direction, but that's okay. It's okay to do that sometimes. It's not absolutes. <laughs> it's not absolutes because absolutely nothing is absolute except for absolutely nothing. We're kind of coming to the end of our, our discussion right now. And and I think, Kayla, what you just said, it was a great summary of what we discussed. Do you want to throw a few more words in there just to kind of tie it up? Just what I would say is that craft has resources for you. And Allies in Recovery, we, we offer two very specific groups that you can get involved in. We offer the rest groups with Lori and the support group with me. And I absolutely believe that what we're asking people to do is not easy and it cannot be done alone and it cannot be done in your head. And so what these groups do is provide information, support, a way of working with things, feedback that is absolutely essential to be able to dig in and really allow you to work this as the best of your ability. And why would you want to stay alone in this? This is a very overwhelming, painful process. If you're listening to this, what we're offering is you don't have to be alone. And truthfully, the community aspect that we're talking about today is absolutely essential for you to be able to do this and not feel like you have to keep reinventing the wheel. Love that. There's brilliance in the group. We're, we're working with the experts, which are people like yourself who have been doing this and they're mm -hmm. the experts. Yep, yep. Thank you so much, Kayla. That was Kayla Solomon and Dominique Simone Levine and Laurie McDougall. And just to let everybody know, we still are running our 10-day challenge on the website. So if you take out a membership and you do half, uh, half of our modules, so there's eight modules. So that means if you do four of the modules in a 10-day period, you get a $250 training for free. So go check it out. Thank you, ladies, and we will talk again soon. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or a guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesinrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, and our production team.